Connecticut Democrats, or Connecticrats, as they have never been called. Welcome back to episode four of Connecticrats, the CT Democrats podcast. My name is Michael Cerulli. I'm the president of the College Democrats of Connecticut. And I'm Dave Kostek with the Connecticut Democratic Party. Do you know what today is? It's September 14th. Why is that? Is that significant in Connecticut history? I don't know, Dave. You're catching me off guard here. I am a little bit. It is the day 100 years ago that we ratified the 19th Amendment in Connecticut. 36 states were required to pass the amendment. It had already passed. It was already enshrined in the Constitution. And Connecticut got around to it to be the 37th state. <laughs> well, they don't call us the land of steady habits for nothing. So Exactly. Our state's history is a little, uh, a little spotty on the 19th Amendment with our, our two Republican senators at the time both voting no. You know, I looked into a lot of this. You can go back and check out our social media feed from uh, August and see a lot of the profiles of suffragists who made that happen. But this year, we've got a lot of women on the ballot across the state. We've talked to uh, Mary Wielander. We talked to our representative, Johanna Hayes. Of course, we've got Rosa DeLauro in the New Haven area. She's been a congressman and is the dean of Connecticut's congressional delegation. And at the statewide level, Lieutenant Governor Susan Beisowitz and our Secretary of the State, is Denise Merrill. She's our guest on today's episode. Really enjoyed this conversation. We talked about voting, we talked about misinformation, and we talked a bit about her former constituency, my current college, the University of Connecticut. Secretary of State Denise Merrill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to see you again. I, I know the last time we spoke, we were at uh, Yard Goat Stadium for the for the yes, convention. Yes, well, that was great. <laughs> and, and I'm sure nothing interesting related to your job has happened since then. Oh man, I just can't get off the front page. I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 a good thing that we have you out there fighting for us, and you know this is such an important time for uh, your role, your job as Secretary of the State. I think before we get into the more details, sort of tell the listeners who might not be familiar with the role of the Secretary of the State, uh, what it is that you're responsible for and what sort of today might look for you as we approach the election. Sure. And that's a great question, actually, because it's a a very, um, a job full of balances and things that I, lines I have to draw. So I am elected uh, with the governor and other constitutional officers uh, every four years. And our office is responsible for a whole number of things, but the most uh, famous, I guess, is the elections department, which is very small. And what we do is we kind of oversee elections in the sense that we don't administer elections, which is a, you know, kind of a common misperception that somehow we're in charge of all elections and actually make it happen. It's actually done by local registrars and clerks most of whom are elected at the local level. So there's two registrars, one Republican and one Democrat in every one of the 169 towns. And we basically help them follow the law. We set policy, we set procedures uh, within what the legislature instructs us to do. But we also, I in particular advocate uh, all the time at the General Assembly for certain policy changes or uh, reviews of how we do business. And this year has been no exception, that's for sure, because Connecticut's a real outlier in a lot of these election issues. For example, we have the most restrictive laws in the country about absentee ballots. Uh, It's very hard to get an absentee ballot in Connecticut. We don't have early voting, not a single day of early voting. I've tried to pass it for years. 
Uh, we finally got it through part of the legislature last year, but we still have a ways to go. So those things conspire to make it very difficult in a situation like this for us to be able to get people to be able to vote by mail or from home. Very, very interesting. And I'm, I'm with you on the uh, early voting. Um, as a student, I think it would be it would boost youth turnouts by so much if we're able to to safely and effectively uh, vote early. So let's jump into what this election makes this election so unique. Um, you are expecting record, not only record turnout, but record turnout via absentee ballot. Uh, tell the listeners something's going to be coming in the mail uh, from your office over the next few weeks. Tell them what that is and what they should do with it once they get it. Absolutely. So we have actually already started mailing out the first step in getting an absentee ballot in Connecticut, and that's the application. So unlike a lot of other states, you actually have to apply to get an absentee ballot. And the thing we're mailing to 2.1 million voters in Connecticut, and they were, they're ma- being mailed out as we speak, are the applications to get an absentee ballot. Now, of course, we're still going to have polling places. So this is just to make it easier for people who are worried about contracting COVID if they go to a polling place in person. They, for only this election, are able to check a little box on the application that says, I, because of COVID, I am unable to appear at the polling place this year. Uh, so the only people that are going to get that in the mail, though, are the people who were registered before August 27th. So there's still going to be a whole lot of people who register might register between August 27th and the election who should go and get an application either from town hall or from our website if they want to vote by absentee ballot. But they will, but the 2.1 million people will be getting one in the mail with a stamped addressed envelope addressed back to the town clerk where they're registered. Thank you so much for that explanation. I think there is definitely a lot of confusion and potentially even misinformation out there over what actually is being sent out to Connecticut voters. And in that vein, let's just dispel a few myths here. Um, How many applications can one voter send back to their town clerk? (laughs) Yes. It's good that you're asking about this because just today someone asked me, you know, I guess the actually it was the chair of the Republican Party who apparently called the press and said, I found out that there's a lady in Fairfield or somewhere who got a one, one application in her married name and one application in her maiden name. So this is just not cause for alarm. It's an application. You could download 20 applications if you want, but you can only file one. Or at least, let's say this, if you file an application for an absentee ballot, you will be sent one ballot. Uh, any more than that would just be discarded because it's logged in as soon as you, as soon as the application comes back to the town clerk, they check the box. It says AB, and that immediately actually goes up on our new ballot tracking system, where you can also see that your application has been logged in by the town clerk. So there's lots of protections in place against anybody fraudulently uh, claiming more than one ballot, I guess is what you're driving at. And yes, that rumor is out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, r- rumors abound. And, and let's let's tackle another one of the, I don't know if I'd call it a myth or a misleading, or I guess maybe just inciting people to commit a felony. The president in North Carolina uh, last week said, well, what his supporters should do is just to test the system, quote unquote, send in an absentee ballot and attempt to vote in person. What would happen to you here in Connecticut if you attempted to do that? Well, you'd be prosecuted and you could go to jail for up to five years. I mean, that was such an irresponsible statement by the president that actually I understand the state of Colorado is literally 
suing him for inciting people to commit a crime because that is crime. Uh, and so I, I especially want people to know we have so many checks and balances to make sure that someone could not file an absentee ballot, vote by absentee, and then come in and vote in person. I get asked that all the time. And the way that works is once you file an absentee ballot, first, as I said, you're checked off as having voted by absentee ballot. That goes next to your name. You can look it up on our lookup tool. We can talk about that in a minute. Then on election day, because there were people during the primary who were concerned that their ballot didn't get there in time. There was the storm, there were lots of delays. So they might get so worried, they're thinking, oh, I, I wanna make sure I get to vote. So they'll come in and vote. If that happens, if the absentee ballots already been received, they wouldn't be allowed to vote in person. I think a lot of people and listeners to this podcast are aware that, you know, Governor Lamont works very closely with his partners and potentially, you know, Attorney General Tong, who we've had on the show, works very closely with his uh, counterparts. And I don't think people are as aware as of the fact that secretaries of state around the country um, work very closely with another, one another, especially now. Talk a bit about uh, the partnerships that you have with your fellow secretaries of state. Oh, yes. Uh, we have a national association. Secretaries of state are really very, you know, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, we all care very deeply about making sure elections go well, that they're fair, that they're democratic. I mean, there are clearly exceptions to that. Uh, we had a situation in Georgia where the secretary of state was also running for governor. And there were a lot of questions about what happened around that election. But mm -hmm. by and large, most secretaries really just want to do a good job. And so um, it's a very important role. And suddenly it went from being kind of this quiet office, uh, usually kind of a stepping stone to something else, to being something that's in full partnership, particularly with governors around the state, uh, around the country, as they try to deal with this COVID situation. And it's really COVID that's changed everything, that's put more attention on the fact that people want to be able to vote from home or by mail because they don't want to go contract a virus, especially against the executive orders of the governor, who right. early on, you know, I think made some very wise decisions to limit contact that people had with large groups and standing in line and that sort of thing. And you did see that happen uh, during the primary in June and, and times like that when I think the first time it happened was in Detroit, I think it was, where people stood in line and literally 50 or 60 people contracted COVID as they stood in line trying to vote. That mm -hmm. is what we're trying to avoid. And right. so the governor and I have been in very close contact around all of these issues. We'll be back with more with Denise Merrill after we hear from Dave and Lisa Thomas, candidate for state Senate. Lisa Thomas is the Democratic candidate in the 35th Senate District, which is in Northeastern Connecticut, and she joins us here today. Welcome. Thanks, David. Thank you for having me. How, how was canvassing tonight? Canvassing was great. So I was teaching all day. I left school and headed to Vernon to do some canvassing, and I knew it was going to be a great day because the very first street I was on was called Emma Lane, and my oldest daughter is Emma. <laughs> And it was a great street. Several houses wanted to have signs in their yards and people were very supportive. Excellent. Uh, you said you, you taught all day. Um, you have a perspective on, on, of course, education and on school reopening. What are, your, what are you experiencing, number one, as a teacher? And 
how does that really inform the way you're approaching the policy issues? You know, if you were the sitting senator, what what kind of differences would you see happening because around school reopening? You know, it's interesting that the thing that's concerning me most about how we reopened our schools is that there hasn't been one consistent plan from one district to the next. And that has really wreaked havoc for working families. I have spoken with the voters and with colleagues where either one or both adults in the house uh, are teachers and their children are going to school and they end up dealing with three different reopening plans. It's really been challenging. And I know a lot of conversation around reopening schools had to do with, you know, alleviating some of the stress on working adults who need to go off to their jobs or who need to work from home. Sure. I'm not convinced that we've really achieved that. Uh, I would have liked to have seen uh, some support put in place first to expand our childcare options, daycare options, to help train those providers in facilitating the online learning that kids will be doing and also to support working families to be able to pay for having their kids in daycare. There are a lot of families who never had to budget for daycare before, and now they're looking at that. It is, um, it's difficult. I mean, I'm a parent of a middle schooler and a high schooler, and even the uh, differences between the two schools in my town is, uh, you know, because they, they have slightly different plans for, for when the kids go in, and it's, uh, it, it is tricky. It is absolutely tricky to, to manage. Um, I do. I would. I do have to say, though, in in my district, um, I teach in Windsor. We're using a hybrid model where one cohort of kids comes Monday, Tuesday, the other on Thursday, Friday, and then Wednesday is that deep cleaning day, and we're all home doing things virtually. The kids have really been great. They are all keeping their masks on. We have about a third of our kids who are 100% uh, remote learners, so they're not coming into the building at all. Which means the other two thirds are divided in half and um, they're really doing a great job. You know, they walk down the hallway with their arms out wide to make sure there's proper distance. They're keeping those masks on. Uh, the kids are, the kids are wonderful. Um, I encourage people to check out uh, Lisa Thomas's social media because there's a nice mix of the uh, campaigny stuff and the issue stuff, but also some reflections on your work as a teacher and your relationships that you've had with students over the years that, that persist into their adulthood. It's really nice to see. She is Lisa uh, for Eastern CT. Um, that's both a URL and you'll find her across social media at those handles. Um, other, other policy issues that would really, I think, affect your district more than others um, surround farms. I know you've been highlighting your trips to farms and those that um, supply uh, a brand that everyone across the state is probably familiar with, the Farmer's Cow brand that you see in a lot of stores. A lot of that agriculture comes from your district. What can, are you, how, how can a senator support those farms and, and advocate? Well, it's been very interesting to spend time speaking with our farmers, and I've spoken with several of our dairy farmers, I've spoken with uh, folks who are running large orchards, and it's not just the food supply chain. These uh, farmers are highly involved in trying to move to green energy technology on their farms, to make sure they have uh, clean waste management programs going, they have a lot to offer and they're very innovative. And the other interesting thing is that we're seeing young women getting involved in our, our farming communities. 
um, not my district, but nearby at Fort Hill Farms, Keys Orr is, is being vastly recognized for her innovations there. And so we need to make sure that we're supporting these efforts on the farms uh, with continued state grant funding that has been made available. Uh, Congressman Courtney has been a great advocate for supporting our farmers. I really look forward to the partnership that he and I could have in continuing to do that. And we need to find ways to help those farms get their product onto our major grocery store shelves. You mentioned the Farmers Cow Cooperative. So that's a group of farmers who built this collective together as a way to market their products. But as I was telling Paul Miller when I was out at Fairview Farm in Woodstock, Connecticut, I walked into the big grocery store near me recently where I was reaching for my farmer's cow eggs and that there was a big sign that drew my attention that said local eggs. And I figured it was going to be for the farmer's cow eggs, but no, it was for a shelf of eggs above the sign and they were not even from Connecticut. And that was very concerning to me. So we need to look into those uh, kinds of situations and what is it that's driving the grocery stores to purchase from out of state. The environmental issues have got to be key um, as well up in your district. It, it is a beautiful, beautiful part of the state. And the preservation of that is essential. Um, what uh, environmental initiatives are sort of driving your uh, interest in, in serving? We're really lucky in the district to be part of what's called the Last Green Valley, which is also a national heritage corridor. The Last Green Valley is a nonprofit that works to integrate preservation of natural resources, the economy that can be built around our natural resources like uh, logging and wood products, like nurseries, cattle, dairy, fruit orchards, and pull it into one big picture. And that's something that has been supported both at the state and federal level again. So it's very much a partnership that should continue to be supported. I know that during the pandemic, uh, those of us out here in, in our quiet corner were very fortunate to be able to leave our homes and take long hikes or, or go for paddles on, on the rivers uh, and enjoy that. And it really decreased some of the stress and anxiety for us. And that's something else that's important to the district, but it's also can be an economic driver. So we need to figure out how we can leverage all of those resources um, to not only protect them, but also to draw uh, into building our economy. In much more general terms, what would be different with Senator Lisa Thomas in the 35th district compared to the incumbent right now? Well, with Senator Lisa Thomas in the district, you would know who your state senator is. <laughs> I am fully integrated into the 13th district. I didn't say his name, and I wonder if those listening, do you know? Do you even know? Do you know? I've talked to so many voters who first have said they've never had a candidate come to their door. And second, don't know who their state senator is because um, the, the current state senator just, he does not show up. He is the, the mayor of Vernon. And I was just talking to somebody today at the door saying, a Vernon resident who was saying that they just can't support him this time around because he's never staying in one place long enough to really be a decision maker and a leader because he's running off to somewhere else. And he's missed a lot of time in the Senate and that's not how you represent a district. Um, and so as I've spoken to voters, my promise to them has been that I will be part of 
their communities, just as I have been a part of my community as a councilwoman for the last 11 years. I actually was talking to one, when I was talking to one of the farmers and part of the issue with something he wants to do on his farm energy wise is not a state issue. It's, it's a local issue. It's his, his municipal issue. And as state senator, that's something that I could help with because I could be creating bridges and connections with that municipal elected authority. And that's just not happening right now in the district. People uh, listening to this podcast have been listening to Secretary Merrill talk about uh, absentee balloting. Uh, those absentee ballots applications have hit your mailboxes, um, most likely, at least we hope, fingers crossed. And as soon as you get them, we want to urge everyone to send them back in. Um, are you? Did you vote absentee in the primary? I did. I My whole family did. And our ballots went right into the drop box that we eagerly installed in Coventry, unlike the mayor of Vernon, my opponent, who refused to install the Secretary of State's ballot box and instead rigged up something in the window of the town hall that was not ADA compliant, was not available 24-7, and the voter had to call in first on the phone make an appointment um, drop off in order ballot. to drop off their ballot. So it was not, um, it wasn't available 24 seven. It wasn't ADA compliant and it really didn't feel private. And it, Vernon was the only town of the 13 that was being disenfranchised that way. It, it took uh, a letter from an ADA group and it took uh, an order from the secretary of state's office for that ballot box to be installed. And just to be clear, there's 169 municipalities in our state. Um, there was a, a bit of a dust up in one of the others down near New Haven, but uh, in Wallingford, but um, mm -hmm. that was the only place, those only a couple places, uh, both with Republican um, uh, mayors or first selectmen who, who were trying to block that. Um, terrible, terrible. Um, but then with something a little lighter, something a little nicer, um, you're a baseball fan. And as, and, uh, as well as an elected official. So while the pandemic is affecting your, your campaigning, for sure, and it's a whole new campaign season, it's a whole new baseball season. What do you, what do you make of, of what we're seeing in Major League Baseball this year? Well, it's not the same experience, that is for sure. It is great to be able to watch some games happening and and pretend to be there. I, I love the way they're piping in the sounds of the crowd and, the and putting pictures on the bleachers. They're getting slightly um, better at it too. It's, it's they are getting better at it. Incrementally. I noticed they're doing the same thing at the basketball games too now. Mm -hmm. The NBA, they've got those crowd sounds. Because um, I am a, I like basketball as well. Of course, I'm a UConn basketball fan, especially the women's team. But, you know, it's great to be able to watch some games. Um, I know it's been a bit challenging for some of the teams to stay safe. Um, and some of them have had to call games because of positive tests for COVID. So they need to be careful. Um, but we all love a good game of baseball and we all love to hit it out of the park, which is absolutely what I'm planning to do on November 3rd. We now return to the second half of Michael Cerulli's interview with Secretary of the State. Denise Merrill. You know, there are some people who are still going to plan on voting in person. And I think, I don't know if that you share this belief that for some people, it might be safe to vote in person, particularly for younger people um, and those who might not have a more crowded polling location. Um, and because of that, there's been this big push to make sure that the shortage of poll workers that we're seeing is filled. Um, I did a video with my college Republican counterpart uh, encouraging young folks to work at the polls. Could you describe a bit about that 
the first the poll worker shortage and what that means and potentially if we're not able to fill those positions what might happen and and what your office is doing to uh, help step up and, and try to you know fill that gap yes it is a concern it's a concern everywhere and we've seen it coming for a number of years because for years now they're mostly the elderly people are the ones that are the poll workers they're the ones that have the time available let's face it right and um but this year of course um you know if you're over 65 you're being urged not to go in person to the polls much less work at the polls so we are making a push this year to come up with as i call it the next generation of, of poll workers and that would be students in fact today uh the governor and i just announced on a statewide call that all the colleges in Connecticut are giving students the day off on election day so that they can go volunteer at the polling places, which is wonderful. I think it's going to net us, again, the new generation of poll workers that we desperately need. And it's a great civic activity. You really get to see how the whole thing works on the ground. So uh, it'll be a little tricky to implement in Connecticut because again, that the polls, polling places and all of election day are administered and organized by the local registrars. So if students or other young people want to volunteer for the polls, you need to go to your town clerks and town registrars. Yes, mm -hmm. they are in need of volunteers, especially frankly, the clerks. The clerks are the ones that deal with absentee ballots. And usually in Connecticut, we'll get maybe 5% of the population will vote by absentee we're expecting like 60 or 70 percent mm -hmm. so imagine what that's going to require from all these towns all of a sudden especially when a lot of the state the uh, local offices are still closed part of the time and they may not have the space to you know man all these uh polling stations and these uh and the computers that are needed to input all the data that's going to be coming in by the thousands uh, so it's a massive undertaking, quite frankly. It's a challenge if we'll be able to manage all this. And we're trying to help the towns. We've sent lots of money uh, down to the towns through the CARES Act resources that we've had at our disposal. But make no mistake, it is a challenge, um, it, especially in Connecticut. So we do have, uh, the governor and I announced this morning, uh, there is a website where people can go to volunteer. We've just gotten it together. And so we're going to have to make a few tweaks to make it work the way it should. Mm -hmm. And we will provide lists of those volunteers to the towns. But essentially, if you want to volunteer to be a poll worker, and I know it's needed on the ground, you have to go to the local towns to volunteer. Right. So to all the, I know I, I've, I've been hammering this home a lot with my college democrats members and just friends and stuff do your part work the polls be a patriot i think we talk a lot about patriotism and and how you know it's not necessarily just waving an american flag around it's actually stepping up and being a part of the democracy and for young people this election i think this is one of the best ways to really uphold our our most sacred tradition which is voting um and I'm gonna i do take a, go ahead you got to take a break because I, I have one more thing I wanted to talk about the the safe polling places. Uh, oh, no, no. Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Because as you said, a lot of young people in particular can still go to the polls very safely. We have provided literally millions of dollars so that every polling place will follow all the CDC guidelines. And we're all used to that with the grocery stores now. So it'll be like that. You stand six feet apart. And, you know, by the way, those volunteers might be people that would be standing outside, making sure people are standing six feet apart, right, for example. Right. 
paneling them to the right booth or um, making sure people have masks on. Um, there's going to be all that going on. Plus, we're going to scrub the polling places before and after. So all that will, I, I don't think people who are not in some sort of category that's particularly at risk need to be worried about polling places, honestly. Well, it's, that's great to hear. I think it's really reassuring for folks. And I, I know this will be my first vote in a presidential election. So I, I am planning on casting it in person because I just want to have the, I want to get the sticker <laughs> and, and be able to, to say that. So yeah. So let's take a bit of a hard pivot here, which is going from a pretty positive topic to something that's a little bit uh, darker, which is you held a press conference, uh, I think last week, Senator Chris Murphy was there as well, uh, talking about uh, one of the external threats, probably the biggest external threat to our elections, which is the fact that several foreign countries, namely Russia, have figured out that uh, Americans really believe what they read on Facebook and, and decided yep. that they are going to launch a misinformation campaign. What are you doing? Well, I guess first describe what that might look like and then also describe what's being done to mitigate this the misinformation coming from foreign actors. This is deeply disturbing um, and has been since 2016. That's when we first really became aware of the efforts coming out of Russia. And we've been briefed, all of us, all secretaries in all 50 states. Uh, we're part of a national committee with the FBI and the Homeland Security and the National Security Council. Uh, and they have briefed us monthly. We, I had to get security clearance for the first time in my life. Uh, you know, and we were getting very specific information about what was going on, not only with our systems, um, which is, you know, the kinds of breaches that were being attempted against things like our voter files, where the, all the names reside, and the election management systems, which are really of concern because that's where we report results. So you don't have to use too much imagination to imagine that um, someone could breach that system and report incorrect results and while we would catch it eventually, it, it could create a massive amount of chaos mm -hmm. on election night. Um, we already know that the election results will be probably much longer in coming than usual uh, because there's just so many absentee ballots in states that are not used to that, like ours. So uh, that is going to, that I think is one of my large concerns is the possibility, and we know now that even in 2016, we're pretty sure that in some states there were uh, basically bots, uh, I guess viruses, I don't know what to call them exactly, that have been invented in certain systems. And once my understanding, my crude understanding of the technology is once, once a system is breached through, usually through a phishing email by a local official, uh, it breaches the whole system and can lie there for years uh, until they decide to use it as malware, basically. So there's lots of things to be concerned about at that level. And then, of course, the big, the big push uh, from the Russians in particular, uh, where they're spending literally billions of dollars on a very powerful uh, and uh, well-developed system of disinformation. So if you see a lot of it is concentrated in uh, urban areas, a lot of it is mostly concentrated on uh, sowing division in America between, as we know, very, very violent factions on both ends of the spectrum sometimes, and, um, and also spreading a lot of disinformation about elections in general, about sowing mistrust in the public about their elections. And this is really 
I think the worst thing about all this is that for the first time, really in American history, Americans don't trust the election and may not trust the result. And, and the impact of that cannot be overstated because one thing we have always had was a peaceful transition of power in this country. It is the one thing that distinguishes our democracy from many, many others. And if that becomes a question to the, to the point where people don't accept the results on election day, we're really in trouble. I agree with that, that it's, it's very frightening to think about. Um, and I think, I think one of the key components there might just be public awareness. And I think that the press conference you did was pretty good at, um, you know, bringing that to the front. And, and I think Senator Murphy's done a great job actually physically showing what some of these things might look like. Um, yeah. And to your point, I think, is it so much so that most of these, these actors are not going to try to change the election results to literally physically tip it in favor of a candidate? They really just want that uncertainty and that sort of, you know, three or four weeks, what they're banking on of chaos, sort of similar to what we saw in 2000, but, you know, with all the added uh, tensions of today's political moment. Exactly right. Although I wouldn't entirely rule out chaos about, you know, changing results as they come in, which, like I say, we would catch it but not right away, maybe. So you can just imagine if all of a sudden the major networks uh, publish results from a certain state that are completely backwards and, uh, and everybody would go into complete freak out mode, right? And then, and then, of course, later on, it could be found out that of course it was false and it was, uh, it was manipulated. But you see what I mean? That's just another version of what we're talking about. But we are, I mean, I, we are combating it. I mean, we've done a lot since 2016 to harden our uh, cyber defenses. We're, we're pretty good on that. No one, had, no, no foreign government that we know of has ever breached our systems. We are, and we've shored up the local systems as well. Everyone's running secure software now. People are changing their passwords. You have to have dual authentication. All those things that really do make a difference. But on the disinformation front, I mean, as I'm sure everyone knows from reading all about Facebook and Google and all these, we're working with these folks, but we've got a free society and an awful lot can be said freely in our country. I would hate to lose that. But um, it's really, really difficult to determine which of these things are actually from a foreign government. I mean, they're not stupid. They know how to disguise these mm -hmm. things. Very good at it. Uh, yeah. So we, do, we have hired someone in my office to uh, try to follow any disinformation that's specifically about the election. You know, telling people that the election's on the wrong day or, you know, right, yeah. <laughs> changing the way we do. We have had that, believe yeah. it or not even right here in Connecticut. Uh, so, you know, the, we can catch those kinds of things, hopefully. But mm -hmm. you're right, public information is the key. People yeah. have to just realize, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Find a trusted source. I, I would like, we have a, a whole campaign about how our office is a trusted source. If you really wanna know things, concrete things about elections, go to our website, myvote.ct.gov, and you can find out pretty much anything you wanna know. Well, that's a great resource, and I think that's a. Uh, I hope the listeners do take advantage of that. And on the point about delaying elections, I guess it probably doesn't help that the president has floated that idea um, a few times. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, every day, it's just like he's sowing the chaos himself just by suggesting these things. And it's very, very difficult for those of us trying to maintain the public faith in elections. Mm -hmm. So, 
This has been a great conversation. I do want to end it on a sort of lighter note. You used to represent in the state legislature the area where I'm now living, uh, right on UConn's campus. Um, can you tell me about some of your favorite spots around UConn's campus, uh, just so we can end on a, on a lighter, positive note? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, what's funny is that I started representing UConn in 1993. I was one of the people that got the UConn 2000 project going, and I have to tell you, there aren't many spots left <laughs> from 1993. I started by trying to rehab the then falling down library. So I think one of my favorite spots is the new library because I started out asking uh, the legislature to give me $6 million to put the bricks back on. Uh, at the time, the bricks were falling off to the point where they had to wrap the entire building in a big plastic bag, uh, <laughs> colloquially known, as you can imagine, as the condom. And uh, that's <laughs> where we were oh, and now today we have a gorgeous library and it's yep. many times more than six million dollars so mm -hmm. i'm really proud of the work we did but um yeah i i still love everything around there i'm glad they didn't completely redo the student union because that was kind of an iconic old um art deco building and For i think sure, they've yeah. been uh, preserving that but yep. yeah so. and i love the museum uh, i think it's a great place People don't know about it so much, but it's a little gem right there in the middle of the uh, campus. So. Yeah, I was actually just there yesterday having coffee with uh, President Katzleis, and we, uh, it is a great spot. And hopefully, uh, once we've, you know, Connecticut's on a great track to control this pandemic, and hopefully, once we've uh, been able to do that, you and I and 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 all of our friends can go to Dairy Bar and go to Homer B. And, <laughs> and oh uh, yeah, I forgot about Dairy yeah, Bar. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. That was Gre Greg Haddad, I think, in his Twitter bio says that one of the first thing before even he says he's a state representative, he says. I love the dairy bar. <laughs> yeah, and so. Horseborn Hill. Yes, I can't tell you sure. how many times I've climbed Horseborn Hill. What a gorgeous spot. Mm -hmm. All right. So anyway. Well, yep. Thank you so much for all this information. I know the listeners are really going to appreciate it, and we all appreciate the work you're doing. Denise Merrill is the Secretary of the State of the Great State of Connecticut. Thank you for joining us today on the CT Dems podcast. Thanks so much. It was great. Election 2020 is so critically important, and I'm just happy that Denise Merrill is the Secretary of State here in Connecticut to get things uh, in our elections running smoothly. Yeah, you can say that again. She is outstanding, and her and her team are going to make sure that every person here in Connecticut has the opportunity to vote and vote safely. Your absentee ballot applications are in the mail or in your mailbox or on your dining room table. It's really easy to fill out. You can just send it right back. It comes with a pre-addressed postage paid envelope to send it back. If you prefer, you can drop it in the absentee ballot drop box outside your town or city hall. You have the option of voting safely then because who knows what the situation is going to be like on November 3rd. So we will see you all next week, or rather we will hear you all next week for our next episode with another candidate and another great Connecticut Democratic official on Connecticut's, the CT Democrats podcast. We'll see you next week.